0: Massive flooding in Missouri, transportation spending, and sales tax distribution in St. Louis County will probably keep Senator Dave Schatz busy this session. The Sullivan Republican joins us for a chat about all of those things and more on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six, five, 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 four, three, three, two, two,
1: one. Uh, I think that is fair as to say. As I say, say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, no, I think my record speaks for itself. It's a really good question.
0: Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter for St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis is...
2: Joe Manis.
0: And joining us using the magic of radio in Jefferson City, Missouri, we have as our special guest today... Senator Schatz. Senator Dave Schatz of... Uh, uh, Franklin County, and your hometown is in Sullivan, is that correct?
1: Hail from Sullivan, Missouri, yes.
0: Well, I think you are our first guest from Sullivan, Missouri. You're breaking new ground on this show. Welcome uh, to the Politically Speaking podcast. Um, Of
2: course, ground is probably a welcome thing these days in Franklin (laughs) County because of the floods. Yes, that is
0: correct. Uh, Yes, Absolutely. So before we ask you kind of about your background and of the hard-hitting issues of the day, just let our listeners know uh, what the 26th Senatorial District encompasses.
1: Well, basically, the, the 26th senatorial encompasses all of Franklin County, all the geography geography in Franklin County and western St. Louis County, which includes the Eureka, Wildwood, and the Chesterfield Valley areas. Uh, it, it's about 175,000 constituents, which 100,000 of those are from Franklin County, about 75,000 constituents in that uh, western St. Louis County piece.
0: I remember when, after redistricting, that district was created, and um, it was It was not like a hugely unusual district because I think that the 26th district before had parts of St. Louis County in it. It just was interesting that more of Chesterfield got added into the fray because I actually um, have family that used to live in Chesterfield and still do. And I kind of associate Chesterfield more with St. Charles County than Franklin County. But obviously, Eureka and Wildwood border the Franklin County. So that kind of makes sense. What's it kind of like to have kind of this suburban rural District to represent.
1: Well, it, you know, it's 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 not. Uh, again, when you mentioned, like I said, Eureka and the Wildwood areas, obviously those are very uh, similar to the majority of, of Franklin County. Then when you move into the Chesterfield area, obviously uh, it's a little little more suburban area. Uh, and and again, I'm very familiar with that. You know, the business that I run, obviously we we operate uh, in. In the St. Louis market area, and so I'm very familiar with that. And so the constituents, uh, I relate, I believe I can relate to very well to them and to the needs of that area, uh, as well as the r- more rural areas of Franklin County, which basically where I live. Uh, so I've pretty got a, a pretty good handle on on the ability to be able to to serve both constituencies pretty well.
2: Do you f- hear or see a lot of pressures between those two constituencies in your district? Because it, traditionally in Missouri, there's often uh, the rural-urban fault line on a number of issues.
1: You know, not not necessarily in this particular. Uh, it seems like the the you know the the folks in the St. Louis County portions of it, obviously Wildwood being uh, a more of a bedroom community as opposed to. Uh, you know, a lot of development of that nature. Eureka, uh, again, right there on the edge of of Franklin County. Um, But there's not a lot of competition there. Again, we don't have a lot of uh, issues. Again, the Chesterfield Valley, obviously there's some agriculture area in the Chesterfield Valley, very fertile ground in that area too. So uh, it really kind of mirrors some of the the portions of Franklin County. So I think the district actually complements itself pretty well by when it went eastward. uh, You know, I was anticipating in the redistricting uh, back in 2010 that 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 district might have moved westward towards Gasconade County or in maybe into Warren County uh, to, um, to to make that district uh, what it is today. But again, it kind of went eastward. And, and again, I believe it's a pretty good fit. And I think, uh, you know, I, hopefully I believe I represent the district very well.
0: Chesterfield Valley is also fertile for large shopping centers as well, as I'm uh, sure yes, everybody that knows. Is,
1: that is correct. Yes. So tell us a
0: little bit about yourself, what you did before you First read for office in
1: 2010. And- where you
2: grew up, and the all important question of where you went to high school.
1: <laughs> I went to. I went. I am a a, a a a native of Sullivan. I've lived there all my life. I, I went to uh, grade school at, at an elementary school called Spring Bluff. Uh, most people are not very familiar with that, but it's a very great school, small K through eight school district, and then ultimately went on to Sullivan High School uh, for the uh, for for the the the. education there in in high school education. And so I'm a Sullivan Eagle. um, And so I've been born and raised in the area. So uh, very proud to have uh, uh, lived there my whole entire life.
0: And um, just for our listeners who may not be kind of aware, where is Sullivan in Franklin County? I I think it's in like the almost the western part close to Warren is, or Gasconade,
1: probably one of the south, most southwestern corners of Franklin County um, on for, Interstate 44 as you travel you know from St. Louis down Interstate 44 as you'll come come to what I typically tell people, if you've ever seen and you know where Merrimack Caverns is, basically Sullivan's just a little bit further west than uh, where Merrimack Caverns is uh, right along Interstate 44.
0: You have to probably be one of the first senators to represent this district from that part of Franklin County, because typically I think they've come either from Union or Washington. So it... I,
1: I, I believe that's correct. I, uh, you know, and I think even when I became the representative of the 111th district back in 2010, I was probably one of the first people to serve uh, from the Sullivan area. In represent uh, in the House of Representatives back in 2010 uh, and definitely I believe from in from that area in serving in the in the Senate most of the again the 26th senatorial has largely been, uh, in Franklin County, and so uh, the former uh, reps or the former senators have came from uh, more of the, I would say the the northern part near Washington Union, Washington, more of the center of the district there, where uh, the county seat is.
0: Well, maybe they'll name a street after you when your service is done. Um,
1: well, <laughs> well, well, I ha- I do live on Shots Lane, but that's self named. Uh,
0: so, wow, we- I didn't even know that. I swear, I swear to our listeners, that was totally a random guess. <laughs> Um, yes. So, so what did you? What would you do professionally before you ran for office?
1: Well, I back uh, when I graduated high school, my father was in the construction industry, and so I went into business and worked with him and and in the family construction company for many years, and ultimately. Uh, went to work uh, at Shots Underground is my uh, family business. My aunt and uncle owned that. And so we're we utility contractors. We've been small business owners um, all my life. That's basically all I've known is being a small business owner and employers. And so we currently uh, continue to operate uh, Shots Underground, and it's a utility contracting business that uh, uh, we've been around. Basically, that business was founded in 1982. And so uh, we've been uh, working there and, and providing jobs and employment uh, for many, many years. So what, what when you say utility contracting,
0: what does that entail?
1: Well, it, it basically, uh, you know, sewer, gas, water, electric, uh, fiber optics, anything that's the utilities that would be placed underground or above ground, uh, we, we do the type of installation, the outside plant construction of those facilities. I mean, a lot of the work that we do is for on the communication side, uh, most people are familiar with the fiber optics and the the necessary need for new fiber and cell towers and things of that nature. And so that's the line of work, which what we do is we do the backbone installations and actually install things to the, actually to the hardware to the house that helps people connect to the Internet uh, and provide their cable TV and and services of that nature.
2: Yeah, because I know in Franklin County, because, yeah, it's it's more – it can be more difficult to get all of the um, – the uh, services these days, as far as electronic and internet and that sort of thing. As 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 a state senator, what are the key issues that are you are hearing about from your constituents? and well, kind of you, how do it, they see things right now uh,
1: you know one thing that you that you that you bring up and well, I'll talk about Franklin County and ironically as we see uh, the underserved areas the people that aren't connected to uh, that have the high speed internet if you if you're fortunate enough to to work somewhere that has high speed internet then you move out into the rural area where you live and you have uh, we'll call it snail mail or whatever you want to call uh, that this, these slow internet connections, people, it's very frustrating. And so ultimately that's one issue that ultimately people complain about. Hopefully they're looking for this uh, uh, broadband to be pushed out into the more rural areas, which obviously there's an economic uh, factor there that's prohibited things from from getting out of those underserved areas. But uh, I think there's some funds coming from the federal government, the Connect America funds, that ultimately will hopefully push broadband out to those underserved areas and, and connect people you know, at a much faster speed. Speed to the internet and some of the services that people enjoy uh, in some of the more uh, urban areas of the of, of the district. So that's one issue in particular that uh, I do hear a lot from some of the people, the rural people in Franklin County, that they're hopeful that someday they'll be able to get some of that uh, uh, get connectivity to that higher speed internet.
2: How how much damage? I mean, in the county, what did the flood do? I mean, are, is is kind of the flood aftermath? Something that's going to be taking a lot of your time over the next year? So I'm just interested in kind of how people are bouncing back.
1: You know, I, this this weekend I will be meeting with Senator Blunt in part of the district down in, in meeting in Eureka with some of the, the elected leaders uh, in that area. We've met with the governor in Pacific last week um, on in the flooded areas again some of the damage this, this flood came um, you know very quickly it's something that um, you know probably no one could really predict or uh, you know try to get a handle on because it, it came so quickly but it also you know fortunately it receded very quickly uh but now trying to assess the damage uh, that, that, that has occurred, and, and helping people navigate through uh, the processes in which they can you know get the resources and the help uh, in order to try to put their lives back together. And so we'll be actively working through that. And, and this is going to be a process that's going to take some time. Yeah, because uh, I, not... I
2: think for our listeners, I mean, I'm old enough. Frankly, I was involved in the coverage of, no, of the 93 flood. And granted, it didn't affect the Merrimack as much. But the two floods were very di- different even though granted in both cases they suffered there, there was a lot of damage the 93 flood it took a while people saw it coming there was still a lot they couldn't do about it and it lasted a long long time but as a result especially along the Mississippi they moved a lot of towns i mean whole towns were moved and some right. other things were done so that when when this thing hit a few weeks ago it didn't affect i think the Mississippi as far as people living along it except in a few isolated cases, as it did, let's say, places like Franklin County, which weren't as affected as much by the 93 flood because of what happened with the Merrimack. Although I do remember that uh, Eureka and Pacific had dealt with some stuff back in 93.
1: You know, back in 93, I remember helping out maybe even further downriver in some of the areas the affected areas that we did some sandbagging where people had anticipated floodwaters coming and the waters backing up. And uh, again, some of the areas in Franklin County this time, there wasn't much time. Obviously, there was a little bit of warning. Uh, and I know some of the the, the places and the facilities in Union, Missouri, were able to try to move uh, some of the uh, out of some of the stores and try to get some of their stock out of there. That that was a very hurried process. Um, again, much different. Again, it was very different than '93. Uh, again, I've lived in Franklin County, like I said, all my life, and so I was there in 1982. I've seen these floodwaters in '82, '93, and now in 2015. And again, this one came in such a a quick fashion that it didn't give a lot of people the time to prepare. Uh, so it and, and it basically receded in it a, in, a, in a, about as quickly as it came. You know, the floods began to subside. Uh, which is fortunate because when we seen some of the arteries uh, and the roads that were closed down and it impacted how people got back and forth to work and uh, if that would have been extended like it was in 93 where we had prolonged times where those rivers were up uh, it would have been much more difficult uh, I believe on some of the local economies and seeing people whether or not they would be able to get the services and resources um, you know that they needed Uh, and again so that there is was quite a difference and but it will be you know the effects of it are going to be lingering for some time now and again we're just going to have to help people navigate to the to you know, the help that they need uh, along that way.
0: Now obviously for the next few months I think the focus is going to be on recovery on a lot of these homes and businesses along uh, the affected areas kind of uh, rebuilding. I'm just wondering though as as both a state legislator and someone who lives there whether there will be any discussion in the legislature among local officials about maybe like a comprehensive flood protection plan to be proactive for this type of thing? Or is this just a situation where the weather was just so bad and there was just no way to really prepare for something like this?
1: You know, and and I don't believe that there's anything. You know, again, I'm not sure uh, in the conversations. I'm certain there'll be some that will have discussions of what could what could we do to prevent, uh, you know, future instances. of This. I mean, one thing, uh, realistically, people have to determine that it, that do live in that floodplain. You know, are they going to be willing to rebuild? Are they going to are they going to relocate, relocate somewhere else outside of these this this area? Because again, this is this has been multiple occasions since 1982 till now. Uh, we've seen historic and record floods that uh, people, and I'm not sure of a way that we can prevent something like this in, in the way that it came. No one, I don't believe, I'm not sure anything that we could do, could stop the flow of water uh, when we get 8, 9, 10, 11 inches of rain over a period of just a day or two or three days, uh, you know, how you can handle that much water. And as we see um, areas develop and we see more runoff, you see, uh, you know, it's just harder and harder to contain the amount of, of rain, uh, that's not absorbed, and it ends up in in these contributories, and then we ultimately end up with the flooding that we had. So I'm not sure if there's any any conversations or talk, and, and there's people at the core that I know that deal on the much larger rivers, uh, but if there ever be a conversation what we could do on on some of the Merrimack, the Burbus River, and some of the areas in Franklin County to try to, to prevent this from happening in the future.
0: It would definitely require conversation with local and federal officials as well as state, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the incoming session as well. One of the issues that you've been engaged in, I think, since you came into the legislature was increasing transportation funding. And um, this has been an issue that I think that the legislature has been wrestling with probably for a long time. They have not been able to get a consensus on how they're going to get more transportation funding. Just very generally, what is your prognosis that the legislature would be able to make any sort of breakthrough on this issue, especially if it involves raising revenues or taxes during an election year?
1: Well, again, I, I look at it I'm, and I try to be optimistic about this because I truly believe, you know, I've done some polling in my district and we we asked the question about transportation funding. The, the majority of the polling that came back uh, from our district, no one denies the fact that we're going to need uh, future revenue for transportation funding. You won't get anyone in this building to probably disagree with the fact that we have to find a mechanism in order to, uh, you know, meet the funding needs. In order to be able to uh, take care of the, the size of infrastructure and the route miles that we have here in the state, uh, we, we do not have enough resources dedicated to do that. So no one's disagreeing about that. They're disagreeing about the mechanism in which we would do that. And for 94 years, we have been able to fund our, our system on a gas tax. Uh, Now, we went radically away from that with a proposal here two years ago um, to go to propose a three-quarter cent sales tax that was widely rejected uh, by the voters of the state. Uh, I'm not sure that if we if we took a, a escalated gas tax to the voters, I'm not sure how well the voters of state would do that as well. But sometimes it's up to us as legislators to make tough decisions uh, in order to look at that, and we have to we have to come to the conclusion that obviously we cannot continue to fund. The last time we had a tax increase, I believe was 1994. Uh, the, that there was a there was a two cent tax increase that was added to the gas tax in '94. I think it escalated maybe for three years. But that if we look at inflation, uh, we basically uh, have eaten all of that uh, it, that tax increase up, and so we're going to have to figure out a way, how do we fund this? Now, Missouri
2: believe... uh, has, I think, the lowest gas tax on the in the country, if not one of the, the lowest. It definitely has the lowest tobacco tax, but that's a separate thing, although there is a proposal to try to increase the tobacco tax and use that money for transportation. Do you have thoughts about either – whether or not it needs to be concentrated on increasing the gas tax or, like, there have been proposals for toll roads along 70. I'm just interested kind of what your thoughts are and what you hear about from your constituents about the best route to get the well, money. Well,
1: again, when I, when the, in the same polling that we did, we asked, you know, we, we came back with multiple um, proposals where people, some people preferred tolling, some people preferred sales tax, some people preferred gas tax, some people preferred none. I don't know that there's the sentiment out there uh, right now in this legislature to to toll I-70. Uh, we're not. I I personally wouldn't take that off the table. You know, some of the new technology exists out there, tolling I-70. But that only really takes care of I-70. You know, if you've been on I-70, you you have to realize. And I think this flood is something. When we look at these major arteries that were shut down, and they were only shut down briefly for a time. If we had, uh, you know, some kind of substantial problem, whether it be bridge failure. Or something like that, and we've seen these major arteries closed for some time, and we don't have the funding necessary. People's lives that were impacted on in this brief time during flooding would probably change their perspective on maybe how they would look at or support uh, maybe a fuel tax increase or a tax increase to take care of transportation. But that, that issue is on the table. I think the legislature should take steps necessary to do what we have uh, the ability to do. And I think that is to raise, you know, the fuel tax modestly uh, in order to make sure that we can meet that federal match uh, and not let those federal dollars go somewhere else. Those are dollars we send to the federal government that they end up sending back to us. But we need to make sure that we draw down all the federal dollars that we can. So uh, doing a $0.02 cent tax increase that maybe would be uh, year after year, maybe over three years to get a $0.06, cents. we can do that under the constraints of, of, of the Hancock Amendment. And I believe that's something we advocated last year. I'm hopeful that we will we'll work through that proposal this year and ultimately get that to a vote and, and get that done. I know it how difficult it will be in a campaign year, and some people that have signed no tax pledges uh, are unwilling to do that of any any kind of a tax increase at all. But I think that sometimes it's irresponsible because our greatest asset that we have here in the state of Missouri is our roads and bridges and our infrastructure, and we cannot let those things fail and deteriorate to a point where someday we kick get to can down the road and we can't we can't find a way uh, to rebuild those systems. I
0: wanted to ask you about that because I think that one of the reasons maybe why some of the Republicans in your caucus or in the House are skittish about about embracing any sort of tax increases because of what you just said. Like, they feel that it's a politically unpopular thing to say to people, we do need to increase taxes because there's a need, essentially. But I I have also observed that some people who have advocated for tax increases, like, for example, Senator Kehoe or even yourself, didn't really face many political repercussions after you voted or, or or handled something like that. In fact, I think in your 2014 election, you didn't even face a Republican primary opponent for many reasons that we probably don't need to get into. But are you getting a sense that it, it may be less politically unpopular to advocate for what you're advocating than maybe people assume?
1: Well, I think so. But I think, like I said, sometimes people have put themselves in a box uh, because of the, the statements they've made that they promised to come here and, and to uh, to lower taxes and not raise taxes. And I think sometimes that's very dangerous to make those statements. Because, again, I truly believe uh, when you understand the issue, when you look at how we funded transportation and we all those things collectively, we can have the argument whether we believe MoDOT has been, um, you know, great stewards or, or good stewards of the resources they've had in the past. I would say some would argue that they have. Hadn't. but we can't deny the fact that what we have in front of us is a problem and the, the only way that we can solve it is trying to find a way to increase the funding necessary to be able to maintain and take care of the roads and bridges we have much less any future uh, construction uh, on any new roads and bridges that may or may not be able to help us attract industry and grow jobs here in the state of Missouri so uh, it's a difficult situation. I realize it's some people's perspective, but I truly believe at the end of the day, uh, I think there is the sentiment and the will, and I think there's probably enough votes here to get that accomplished. Again, we need the governor to come out and, and lead and support uh, that I- that that issue as well, uh, and, and I think sometimes we've, had a, we've seen that being a little bit lacking as well.
0: I want to play a clip now from House Speaker Todd Richardson. I interviewed him over the phone for a preview story, and I asked him about what his prognosis was for transportation funding. Here's what he had to say about that.
1: I think it will continue to be a very, very difficult task to pass a tax increase uh, through this legislature. And I think that includes both the House and the Senate, particularly in an election year. Um, so we're going to be focused in the House to trying to find some ways to improve the transportation system and the amount of money we're spending in transportation uh, through uh, the budget and try to find some ways that we can prioritize that spending as we have uh, revenue growth. And that's where we'll start uh, the legislative session. I think there's an opportunity um, to generate some savings in some other areas uh, that we can then refocus on transportation.
0: Now, that contention that the speaker has put forward that maybe you can find other savings in the budget and use it for transportation has been brought up a lot, especially by opponents of any tax increases. I'm just curious, is that like a realistic avenue that maybe you could cut something else in the budget and redirect it towards transportation, or does it have to be done basically by essentially raising more money from somewhere?
1: Well, again, I think it's optimistic on, on Speaker Richardson's. Uh, again, I served with Speaker Richardson. I came into the House four years ago with him, and and, uh, and I know it's a very tough task in what he's saying there. And I think it's, it's optimistic thinking on his point to say that we could find areas of the budget uh, when... When people – there's a never-ending need of people looking for money in the budget. Obviously, we talk about education funding and how people believe that, we've, that we haven't met the commitment to the foundation formula. Uh, and so where do you pull dollars from? There are some proposals out there that we could talk about uh, of, of different things that we could do, maybe moving – uh you know a few things around and trying to find some budgeting dollars but all those are just going to kind of be band-aids uh that uh, that again even a 2 cent in a tax increase is not going to solve the, trans- the future of transportation funding here in the state but we have to be willing to look at those uh be uh, be open on them but we can't just be uh giving those lip service and and people just saying that we would do that and i think that uh, ultimately i do believe that we could we have some obstacles here in the Senate. Uh, the Senate's not necessarily as difficult as the House is in an election year because obviously uh, the Senate you know, terms are four years as opposed to every every two years, uh, that we would probably be more capable of getting some form of a transportation funding bill uh, through the Senate uh, process easier than what the House may do.
0: The the other issue I wanted to talk with you about is a little bit more localized. Um, St. Louis County Executive Steve Stanger told Don Marsh of St. Louis on the Air That his biggest priority is trying to get a bill through the legislature that would authorize a sales tax increase in unincorporated St. Louis County for the St. Louis County Police Department. Now, the reason I'm bringing this question up to the senator here is the senator was kind of a big uh, participant in that debate because I think that there are some people who are upset with the way the one cent sales tax is distributed throughout St. Louis County that basically – said on no uncertain terms that they weren't going to allow that through the legislature unless you made some changes in that one-cent sales tax increase or one-cent sales tax int- distribution. So kind of give me the la- your your thoughts on this issue because I think it kind of affects your district in several different ways because on the one hand, you have Wildwood, which has the St. Louis County Police Department patrolling that city. But you also have Chesterfield, who is very upset with the way the tax distribution is, is going right now and want some changes there.
1: Well, whenever I was elected to the, the 26th senatorial, obviously I had never really heard the term. I mean, being in the House four years, I know that there was uh, representatives that had filed this pull tax issue. Never really got very familiar with it because it was a St. Louis County issue. Uh, I basically had some of Franklin and Gasconade uh, going the other direction. But when I became the senator for the 26th, uh, I had a meeting with uh, the mayor of Chesterfield, and I began to, to get familiar with the, the sales tax pool, the one-cent sales tax distribution. Uh, I, As I looked at it, it's a very complex issue. It's been around for a long time. The legislature has intervened in this before. Uh, that's basically complicated, complicated the system up to this point. But what I felt there was something that we could do to try to bring some, what I would say some fairness to the pool was I offered and sponsored a bill last year that basically all it stated this was that, that no city or municipality that participated in the pool would receive less than 50 cents of every dollar they generated within the confines of their Municipality, uh, right now, currently, I believe uh, Chesterfield only receives uh, maybe 46, 47 cents of every dollar they generate. They're one of the largest producers of sales tax in St. Louis County, uh, and again, they're pay, they're paying, but they're getting very, very little back from that. And when you look at the cost for economic development and growth, and, and law enforcement to police those areas, uh, it w- it's almost a disincentive to to embrace economic development when you know that you're not going to receive much of the cost benefit from the tax that you raise. So I I looked at that and I said, I think that we could probably do, we could get 50 cents get to that threshold of 50 cents. Uh, And people would look at that and say, that's fair. It's probably not necessarily right. I would like to go higher than that, but at least 50 cents should be getting back to that local area. Um, Then the law enforcement piece obviously came into play. Uh, It was a provision that was added into the house when the bill was uh, in committee over there. And so those two came together. But the opposition that I ran to ran into in the Senate, uh, where other senators that represented municipalities that said that they were not going to have any um, any change or to the distribution or any make any changes to the St. Louis County poll tax. The only leverage we had was that, that there was not going to be any changes as far as the law enforcement piece. I have met with uh, Steve Stinger. On a couple different occasions, he was not. Uh, he did not think that what we were doing was unreasonable as far as the proposal, and I think that he wasn't. He wasn't going to champion that cause, but he thought it was a reasonable approach because obviously the law enforcement piece is, is very important uh, to St. Louis County, and I understand that, and would love to be able to help them accomplish that. And I think there's some proposals out there that we've we've discussed. I've also filed my piece of legislation that we filed last year, and I think that there was someone filing a proposal to raise the. Uh, Acts for law enforcement in St. Louis County. Now, those two measures are probably going to come head to head at some point in time uh, as we go through this process. But I'm very adamant that um, this this antiquated uh, pool, sales tax pool system that people have become very hooked on the revenue. Again, I represent Wildwood. Uh, that, that that takes a very large piece of that revenue. I believe they get for every dollar they generate, I think they get two dollars and fifty cents back from the pool. Uh, yeah, you like that part of it if you're the, if you're on the receiving end uh, of that pool tax. But uh, again, if you're the person that's paying it only getting 46 cents, you'd understand the dynamics of my district and why it's a difficult issue for me.
2: Yeah, I mean j- just for our listeners, um, St. Louis County's sales tax, split is very complicated. I wrote about this. This is one of the first issues I wrote about almost 40 years ago um, is because you have point of sale where some communities can keep all their sales tax revenue. Then you've got the pool cities who have to share it all. There were some changes in the law so that some um, newer municipalities like Chesterfield weren't able to become, quote, a point of city. They had to... uh, So they're a pool, but they're allowed to keep some, as the senator pointed out. But I, I think it's probably pretty complicated when you're trying to explain this to...
0: Anybody, basically. Any <laughs> any
2: legislators from outside the area, because it is such a hodgepodge. And then um, Stinger's latest proposal, which really has little to do with that, it really has to do with the unincorporated areas that were increasingly the county uh, police are providing all the police protection. And I think also he's looking ahead because of the um, uh, court changes because of the Ferguson unrest. There may be more unincorporated territory where the county police are going to be providing the protection if you have some And and I
0: understand where Chesterfield is coming from because they clearly started off where they weren't like this retail mecca that they are now. Now they have put in a lot of a lot of effort into becoming um, a retail hotspot. Some say that's good. Some say that's bad. That's a that's a discussion for another time. And they clearly put in the effort and want to keep more of the money. But obviously, other municipalities want that money, as you mentioned, and they want to keep it the same so it it doesn't affect them that much. Is that basically what's going on here?
1: Basically, it is, and what we the provision we put in again, and we tried to do this to, to the little or no impact to uh, the, the the anybody that was a part of the pool, and so we put a provision in there that basically was a hold harmless agreement that said that whatever you received in in 2014 from the pool, we would only change that distribution as the pool grow to as it grew in order to re- achieve that 50% cap. So no one would receive less money. No one would have to cut services, but that was widely rejected. They, people felt like that was even an unreasonable approach. It was only going to affect the, f- the pool by 1.8% uh, in the, of future increases, and we ran into uh, objections and hurdles there whenever that again, and I felt it was very reasonable. No one was harmed. No one would have to be laid off. Uh, no one would receive less money. And we filed the same proposal to, to basically achieve that. There is another sales tax proposal out there that's been discussed by the Municipal League that they cannot come together. I think they've been there at about a 50-50 split on that. And I look forward to trying to to bring some uh, closure to this issue, uh, hopefully you know, representing the 26th you know, in the future, that, that again, the, the law enforcement piece is very important. I understand that. I think St. Louis County uh, has done, uh, you know, uh, they're being – uh, they're, they're being worked very hard uh, and finding the people and and, and getting uh, the, the right folks there is very difficult and funding is very key to that. And so I'm I'm, I'm very aware of that and we're going to do what we can to try to help solve that problem. We're not trying to make things worse, but we're also trying to bring some fairness to the issue. And when the legislature changed some of the, these things where, where cities could opt in or opt out, every 10 years you had the ability to either become a point-of-sale city or uh, a pool city. They took that option away that's no longer available. And once they change the rules of the game, this distribution, I can can see where people, as the sales tax may move from one area of of St. Louis County to the next, people would understand if you are, if you're creating and generating the majority of sales tax, you'd like to keep a portion of that to make sure that you can maintain your streets, your your law enforcement and your fire protection, all the things that you need are the necessary to provide those services to keep those retail uh, businesses there.
0: Now, I just want to ask one quick more, one more quick question on this before we move on to something else. Is it fair to say that the, the staying, proposal or the Stingerback proposal to get the sales tax increase for unincorporated county on the ballot. Is it not going to pass unless something is done
1: with the sales tax pool issue? I, I definitely think that's probably fair. Uh, to, it's a fair assessment to say that, uh, again, that the, anyone that, that, that is going to be a roadblock in, in having the discussion, the conversation on, on this sales tax pool, it's going to be very difficult in order to get that provision uh, passed as well. Again, um, that is the leverage. That's a piece of leverage sometimes that's necessary to use in order to make sure that you get people to, that will um, negotiate, uh, that are unwilling to negotiate.
0: In the, in the last few minutes that we have, what are some other big issues that you foresee over the legislative session, which just started a couple of days ago?
1: You know, there's a lot of talk about ethics reform uh, that that you know that that's out there. Um, I'm certain there'll be discussions and conversations on on ethics reform. Again, uh, I'm working personally on the issues, that, some workers' compensation reform issues that I've been working on for the past few years to try to get those things accomplished. We've got a um, a, a fair amount of legislation uh, that we filed, um, you know, this year that we're going to be working on, and this is an ongoing process. And then, you know, you very rarely do you see an opportunity where you will file a piece of legislation and you can get it through the process and get it signed into law in one year. And so these are multiple year approaches sometimes in order to get something accomplished. So uh, as we keep working uh, on some of these particular issues, again, they're almost like we call them retreads because they come back every year, but we finally get people educated on them. And the complexity of the issues are what sometimes what makes it very difficult in order to educate people uh, and with term limits, uh, you know, some say they're good or good and bad. Uh, we find that you have a new class of people coming in, then you've got to educate them on the process and the issues that are there, and so sometimes it makes it very difficult to get things accomplished.
0: On on ethics, what what type of things do you think will actually find favor through both chambers? I mean, things that have been talked about are curbs on lobbyist gifts, closing the revolving door on lobbyists, or legislators becoming lobbyists. I know that some Democrats want campaign finance limits or campaign donation limits, but that seems like a pretty big long shot. What are kind of the things you're hearing that are actually going to be considered. You know, I think
1: it's going to be difficult for any uh, ethics reform uh, to to make it through both sides of this building. I think the best thing that we can have for uh, is transparency in these issues. Uh, And right now, I believe that we have pretty good transparency in all those areas. Uh, And so, again, anything that you do that would probably impair or maybe lessen that transparency, I think would be a bad thing. Uh, so I think you know if we look at if we want to make things more transparent make things more out in the open I think that's the best thing you know being able to shine uh, sunlight on any of these areas I believe is the best thing where people have the ability to look at uh, these issues Uh, and again it's something that's going to be a challenge. Uh, a lot of people talk about it. I'm not sure that in, in the people that I speak to in my district on a day-to-day basis uh, are, more, are as concerned about, you know, ethics reform as maybe what some of the the uh, the, the folks in, in the media are uh, because they're worried about jobs, job creation, floodwaters, things of that nature that are more important to them, I think, than uh, worrying about th- some of the issues that sometimes are brought up when we talk about campaign ethics.
0: Yeah. When you say transparency, I take that that's also an allusion to, to campaign donation limits, because I think that some opponents of campaign donation limits have said that it just causes money to be obfuscated And the transparency that they talk about, if if you get a large donation, it's just easier to see it that way than for it to be, like, cut into a bunch of different pieces. Is that basically what you were saying before?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes.
2: Now, is there a problem? I mean, there have been – we're talking about the revolving door here where there have been uh, some legislators who are concerned because they have their colleagues, including former House or Senate leaders – who quit their posts early and then quickly become a lobbyist for some major firm, uh, then in somewhat like at least a one- or two-year waiting period. I know that's in some of the proposals. Um, and part of this is because a lot of the lobbyists were rowing the halls these days are former legislators. Uh, do you have any sense of what might be done in that area, or do you think, that again, that it's something that the average person doesn't really care about?
1: I, I'm not sure that the average person really cares about that. Again, and I'm not sure what difference it makes, whether the, they're a, a legislator that just finished a term of their, uh, that, that they served an eight-year term and they, and they become lobbyists. I think it's very difficult in order to prohibit someone from, from either taking a job or earning a living. Uh, and so I, I think it's dangerous territory when we go down that path. I'm not sure what the dangers are necessarily that, that people are concerned about someone, that whether or not they leave their their. Their post as a as a as senator or rep and, and become uh, working. Um, on on issues, I mean, there you know, people have a negative connotation toward lobbyists. Lobbyists are people that provide information, uh, and so and I think there's a misunderstanding sometimes about a, what a lobbyist does. I, I don't know that the, they're probably not looked on any higher than politicians, used car salesmen, or anybody else. Whenever you look at the five, probably the most five worst hated occupations, lobbyists probably fit in there pretty close. But uh, again, when you at the end of the day, um, I think it's pretty dangerous when we start thinking about limiting somebody's ability to earn a living, uh, regardless of You know where they came from. So uh, I, I'd be interested to see and curious to see where that conversation goes and how we go there. Again, I don't see that something, that revolving door being something that's that's going to be widely accepted uh, in the process, but I might be surprised too.
0: Well, obviously, utility contractors is at the top of the most loved uh, profession <laughs> list above all I, those things. I'm not
1: sure about that either. Well,
0: <laughs> I'll have to take a poll, but we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining with us today. We, we always find it to be a pleasure to have the state senators that represent the St. Lewis region on. And good to have you on the show. Um, all right, thank you. For all of our for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at
2: J Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And can
1: we follow you on Twitter, Senator? Uh, you know, you probably can. Now, I'm not a technology guru, so I probably can't give you the Twitter file feed, but my chief of staff probably could do that.
0: Well, I will find out and put it on our website. Until then, so long.